How are you feeling? And what was your game plan? Because I know Ben Davison didn't tell you to stand in front of him in round one with your chin in the air. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you dare me. I've grew up watching you. Taylor, Taylor fight, grows one. <laughs> I've been through it and all. Listen, let me tell you something. I haven't got the skill set you've got. I'm, I'm man enough and honest enough to admit that. You're a far more skillful, talented fighter than me. I, used to, I had to be fit and strong and take punches on the chin. You don't have to. You've got good reflexes. You know what I mean? I thought that's the way you crack on. Listen, don't follow me. Listen, I know you like a fight, and I know you, you, can, you can have a brawl, and you can take a shot, and you can get off the canvas to win. But this evening, are you guilty of having a slow start, or was, what was the game plan? Yeah, I was, I was flat in my Hey, and welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where, you know, Eddie Hearn manages to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear yet again. Um, I think the the Sheffield card, for all of its limitations, turned out to be more entertaining and more engaging for the fans than we thought. And look, for all the times we say that Hearn is down and out in his stables, garbage, he seems to dig up moments like this where he shows that match from shows are still the number one proposition in this country. Um you know, it doesn't fill me with joy, it doesn't fill me with sadness to say that, just being honest, matchroom shows remain the best shows in the country. And, you know, Boxer slash Sky, Queensbury slash TNT, take note. You have to make these kinds of fights and you want to match those styles so you get these sorts of outcomes. And hopefully, um, November the 18th in Manchester is what we'll see. And October 21st at the... O2, is it the O2? Uh, for Aziz Boatia. Hopefully, we get similar levels of entertainment and things to talk about. Normally, these things go on for ages, and I know it's great for you guys if you're walking your dogs or driving a cab, but, you know, sometimes I feel I talk too much. So I just want to keep this one as focused as I can. <laughs> I say this now. It could be embarrassing if it goes on to an hour. But people want to know, you know, Wood Warrington, you know, what What was that all about? Um, what I propose is let's not talk about the the round-by-round round breakdown. I think to summarise the fight, Josh came in being Josh, actually, and he hasn't done that for a while. He's been, he. I think the first Lara fight kind of made him tentative, and so he started to doubt whether that approach worked. With this one, he seems to have gone back to kind of Tasmanian devil Josh just throw loads of punches just shoot forward head all over the shop all that sort of stuff that Josh was known for for just being basically a nightmare to fight and Lee Wood didn't seem to know how to time that initially and it's often the case with Josh that those first six rounds are harem scare him. and if you if you let that get into your head 
the second half of the fight is equally as hard. Whereas if you can stay calm and just sort of keep yourself in good nick while he's doing all of this, you give yourself a chance in the second half because it's not a sustainable pace that he sets and he knows that. But he was... Josh was winning the fight and he was able to sort of win win exchanges going forwards, win exchanges going back. Lee Wood didn't seem to know how to let his hands go. He didn't seem able to to trust, you know, trust his skills. And let's let's go back and remember Lee Wood was a decent amateur at schoolboy level, junior level, all the way up. So Lee's not a he's not a guy that's come up from the mud, if that makes sense. He's he's been in good company his whole career. It's just maybe poor management or whatever. He had that lull at that point in his career when he's meant to kick on. But post Conlon he's he's been pretty good. So credit where credit's due. But even with that skill and experience, he just couldn't figure out Warrington. That's the only way I can describe it. He couldn't figure him out and go, where are my key opportunities here? And it wasn't until that seventh round, right? Where A, the fight got really interesting and B, Warrington seemed to, to deviate from what he had done up until that point. So the first thing to talk about is... Uh, the point deduction for hitting around the back of the head. So anyone apart from Warren said I'd be making noise and say Michael Alexander got it horribly wrong because Lee was turning away from some of those shots. And it makes it hard because remember, I'm trying to aim a shot for where you're going to be in 0.1, 0.15 of a second. So if you turn, and I'm not expecting that, it's going to hit the back of your head. So normally I'd say, yeah, you know, he's turning into, he's turning away from the shot. That's why that's happening. Um, Warrington comes in, doesn't really manage his distance too well, just lets hands go. And if you duck forward, you're going to get one on the back of the head. That doesn't excuse those shots, by the way, because they are quite debilitating. But because it's Josh and he's got away with so many things over time, you almost look at it and go, this is just the boxing god saying, look, we've let you get away with this for most of your career. This is one time you're going to have to just hold it and own it. And, you know, that's what he did. Point deduction. He came back firing. Maybe he got overconfident. Maybe he, he saw himself dominating Lee Wood and he's like, this isn't as hard as I thought. I can do what I want in this ring. And so that leads us to that final and exciting sequence you know it had Mike Costello and Carl Froch absolutely swooning so the first thing to talk about when it comes to that sort of final sequence was Lee Wood switching to Southpaw I'm sure Ben Davidson will come out and say that was always in the plan um it was a tricky thing to do because you know Warrington had had his way and generally I find that because Warrington doesn't really throw conventional shots, it doesn't matter what side you are, he's going to get you. So you're better off being in the side you're most comfortable with so you can read it a little better. But as he wasn't really reading anything, I guess it made sense to go southpaw. But what it also did is it put Lee Wood's most powerful hand at the heart of the action. And I can see the logic. Like from a coach's perspective, there's some logic that says, if you're going to have close quarters exchanges, may as well just have that hand close by in case there's a split second opening. You haven't got to travel as far to, to land a heavy shot. So if you, if you think about what happened in that sequence, they both shape up. 
and nothing alarming. Warrington's got his hands up, as he always does. Um, people who know me long enough know my views on Warrington's style. So Lee Wood initially goes with the backhand. Yeah, so now it's his left hand. So rear left hand into a right hook. That's what Warrington goes in with um, as a teaser. But you watch it and there's no conviction in that backhand. He's almost just throwing it to shift his weight over to the right side so he can just let the right hook go. So when I see that, I go, okay, he's really just trying to land that right hook because maybe in the videos they've seen that Josh drops his left when he wants to throw hooks. And if they've seen that, fair play, right? Smart way to exploit it. But the first time it happens, Josh has got his guard up, right? And he's on his toes. That's why it wasn't effective. Wood transitions to his left. Josh is still in his guard. And so you're like, Ooh, okay, what do you do now to bring the guard down? Nothing. Wood does the same thing. Throws that straight left into a right hook. Josh started out in the right position. And so in Josh's head, he's going, if he throws that again, I'm coming back with my own shots. And here was the difference. And this is when that first left hook that wobbled Warrington comes, right? That first right hook that wobbled Warrington was, how'd you break it down? Wood's gone in with the same thing, kind of like a throwaway left hand into a right hook. But this time, Josh has gone to counter. And in doing that, he's dropped his hand to throw the left hook, if I remember correctly. And that created the opening for Lee Wood's right hook. But because Lee hadn't overcommitted, which Warrington had in throwing his backhand, he was perfectly balanced to let his shot go quicker. And in that situation, it was just about who landed first. And then we had the same sequence. So if you actually go back, that, that first time that Josh gets wobbled, he's still throwing a four or five punch sequence. So he knew what he wanted to do. And then Wood being smart, just retreated through the same combination again and then did it one last time to, to drop Josh. And they were heavy shots because Josh couldn't seal up his guard because he was obviously discombobulated from the shots. So Josh goes down. Right? At this point, I think, I think at this point, the bell's gone. And so the ref starts to count because you can't get saved by the bell. I'm 100% confident both fighters have heard the bell. Okay? Josh gets up, looks a bit unsteady, goes back to his corner, sees his corner up, stool, towel, everything in place. And I don't know if it's a glitch or whatever. He's probably just gone, right, let me go and sit down. I've got a minute. Because once he's gone down, he realizes the minute starts when that bell goes. So he's like, I've got to get back. I don't know if the ref has then said to Josh, turn around. Let me look at you. Which hopefully Michael Alexander would have said in light of the fact that it's a world title fight. And let's go back to Wilder Fury 1, where protocol was given out. I want to make you walk to your left, walk to your right, whatever it is. You're hoping Michael Alexander said, turn around. If he did and Josh didn't respond to that, I get why the fight was stopped. But the fight was stopped before the count was finished, I think, if I remember correctly. Now, you can now delve into the sort of controversy of, was that a terrible stoppage? Yeah. And I think I spoke about this last week with Jamie TKV. I'm always going to try and give the corner a chance to make the decision on whether the fight carries on or not. So let's not dwell on specifics here. That's just my general principle. If you've got less than 30 seconds to go to get to the, to the corner, you should try and let the fight go wherever you can. 
Let that minute happen. If nothing's fixed in that minute, you've got the opportunity to stop the fight anyway. I think, I don't know if Josh would have recovered in that minute, but you've got to give him a fighting chance. For, you know, just for me, it's a world title fight. You've got to hold it to a slightly different standard. Um, he had been on top in the fight. So it's not like he was taking a beating round after round. He'd been on top in the fight. He had done what he had to do. And so it was about his corner. Get the cold towel on the neck. Um, you know, shake him up a bit. Get in his eyes. Make sure he's all good. Let Josh get some air in. You know, let him recover. Get his legs under him. All that sort of stuff you can do in a minute. We've seen it throughout boxing history. And Josh is notorious for his engine and his powers of recovery. So I think there are all sorts of reasons why Michael Alexander could have let it go. I also suspect maybe Michael Alexander had lost sense of where the fight was at. And maybe when he saw the corner up, and maybe he saw a towel in the hand, he's like, okay, they want me to stop the fight. I'm going to stop it. I don't know. We never get a chance to talk to the referees. But it all feels like a bit of a mix-up. It's the sort of thing that they should be... Because the protocols aren't clear. Every ref has his own way of working out if you're fit to continue. I don't doubt for a second Josh was fit to continue because if you see the angle of Josh walking back towards the corner, you can see him swearing. I don't know if he's swearing at his corner or swearing at himself, but you can see him swearing like, oh, damn, how did, that, how did that happen? So he's got the presence of mind. There's no question about that. The presence of mind was there. He wasn't you know, overly buzzed. It wasn't like Zab Judah versus Costa Zoo. I, my opinion, fight should have been allowed to carry on. Other people will make a credible argument for an alternative view, and that's cool. But it felt like a bit of a hollow victory from a, from a Lee Wood perspective. But he's not going to listen to what I've got to say about that. He's got his win. It's on his record. And he'll probably crack on. I'd like to see that rematch, though, because I like to see these sorts of wrongs righted eventually. Do I think it will be any different? No. Because Lee Wood... Lee Wood carries whatever power he's got. And I call it like mid-level power. So against guys like Warrington, you can do that. I don't know if he does that against Valdez, Navarrete, etc., etc. But he does it against those sorts of British guys like Warrington, Conlon, etc. Um, and he does it for fun. But those higher-order Mexicans, like the, the guys who have won multiple titles, I'm not so sold. But you still have to congratulate Lee Wood for pulling it out and having the presence of mind to go for that knockdown. Others might have not have done that, but he did. And it's, it's a great story in a career that keeps on giving. And you have to say that. I think if you talk to anyone in Nottingham, they haven't had anything since Carl Froch. Obviously, they've had guys like Derek Osaze that have risen, um, Echo Esselman, who have come through, but they haven't come through at that world championship level, at that selling out arena level like Lee Wood has because, you know, Lee's been in the community a long time and he used to go to Froch shows as well. So I'm happy for him in that sense and I like the fact that he gets to make money and hopefully secure his future. So I'm not going to be mad at that. But I think economically, the Warrington fight's his best option over Cordina. I think there's more money in that. And I think legacy-wise, you know, if those guys have a run of fights, I think that's also good for the legacy because you always want a natural rival. And the fact that the two Brits, I think, is good. So I'd like to see the rematch. Others may not, but that's just my view on it. I thought it was good to see Warrington back to that kind of nasty, abrasive ruggedness. I'm not a fan of the style. It's just very basic and uncultured, but it's effective. And that's, that's broadly, broadly how I look at it.
But you know what it also does? Like if I put my Matchroom head on and I go, right, what would Matchroom love? Matchroom would love to run those two in parallel. So split Warrington and Wood for now, send one of them down the Cordina route, one of them down the kind of American route, maybe like a Navarretti or a, um, Oscar Valdez route, and then see where you are, bring them back together. If they both lose, bring them back together. They both wouldn't bring them back together regardless. I can see that happening um, because it's really just about money. They don't want to please the fans. But overall, look, we can complain about where they are in their careers. You know, they've seen better days. But I'll take an entertaining fight over a, a prospect versus prospect or up-and-comers. So we knew what we were getting with that fight and you know, it delivered what it needed to. So for me, the only other fight I need to go into in any detail, because obviously my personal connection is Linus Adofi versus Kieran Conway. Um, I watched that fight. It broke my heart. It, it broke my heart because I, I really, really like Linus. Like, he's a nice guy. You know, one of those guys I've known for such a long time, and he's been, an important, he, he's been such an important part of my, my podcast journey, um, boxing journey in general, over the last seven years. So... I will always have a special place in my my memories, my heart for for Linus. And I was watching him against Kieran Conway, and I'm I'm of the view when it comes to Kieran Conway, you've got to draw him into a fight. You're not gonna outbox him at range. He's tall. He's he's rangy himself. You're not you're not gonna be able to get away with that. And I was watching Linus, and Linus was was kind of trying to pick him off. You know, shoot a jab to the head, jab to the body. It got more interesting when Linus started to switch his angles of attack. So when he started to slip in and start throwing, you know, left uppercuts, and that that was the Linus I was hoping to see. And I think this is one of my beliefs. Every boxer has to go through in their development phase. They have to go through that war, right? That war that gives them the courage to say. I can put my head on someone's chest and go. Uh, I can do that. I can make it nasty. I can make it ugly. And I back my chin in those situations. Had he done that, I don't think Conway's as comfortable. I, don't, I can't say who wins, but Conway's nowhere near as comfortable as he was in that fight. I think if Linus quickens the foot speed to shut that distance down, I don't think Conway's got the same amount of confidence. I think... Conway went into that fight believing he was levels above Linus. And it was Linus's job to impose himself immediately and say, the gap's not as great as you think it is. In fact, there is no gap. That's what I would like to have seen from Linus. Now, you know, how do you get that out of him? I leave that to those who know him best. I, I want to see him fulfill his potential. I don't think he has. I think there's a lot more within Linus Adofia to come out. But it's going to require some soul-searching. Um, some strong planning from his management and actually putting this guy in harm's way and going, look, go and have some wars. We'll find some middleweights, some super mids, go and have some wars so you understand how to do that when you need to. Because there are times when Linus has to box and he can do that well. There are times when he might have to just sort of box punch, he can do that. Times when he has to be on the back foot and counter, he can do that. But there are times like with the Kieran Conway, where you've got to impose your physicality, because I don't think Kieran Conway is that strong. Like, I don't think he's that imposing, and Linus could have done that. 
But I say all of this stuff, but I'm, you know, I'm glad he's got that stage for the public to see him. And I hope he gets another opportunity on DAZN or another televised network because he is talented. He's just got to kind of fill in some of these gaps, like being able to go to war with a Kieran Conway, being able to go to war with any of these kind of up and coming middleweights. You know, maybe send him abroad, like let him let him go and jump in with a Janibek and see how he does. But you're not going to outbox a lot of these guys. Sometimes you're just going to have to be be a savage in there and just go right. Heads get taken off. Like it, it's work for Warrington. It it can work because I keep saying this: as you move up the levels in boxing, you you end up with fewer and fewer tools, and so you have to be better at using those tools than anyone else. I use Chris Billum Smith as an example. Chris Billum Smith doesn't have a lot of tools. But the tools that he has, he's mastered. And he knows how to put them together for his approach, his mindset, his mentality, and his style. He knows how to do that. And he can do it repeatedly. And that's what you need. You, know, you need that solid foundation. But back to what I was saying before. Love Linus, great guy, um, and hopefully, you know, this is the beginning of him on TV. So let's fly through the rest of the card. Um, you guys already know I'm not necessarily a fan of of the ginger guy from Doncaster. So Terry Harper, what did she get? Majority draw against Cecilia Breakers, who must be about 65 now. And I think that's justice because we all remember what happened in the Jonas fight. So it's nice for her to hold one of those. Um, from from the bits I saw, not a great fight, not a surprise. I I think I think Harper's boxing to pay someone off. I don't believe she wants to box. She doesn't look that enthused like she did before. I don't think it's her thing. Um, Natasha Jonas is now fighting Michaela Mayer, so those opportunities are dwindling now. I think she's running out of options. Do you rematch Breakers? No one wants to see that. Do you fight Sandy Ryan? Uh, Sandy's got McCaskill business to take care of. So what do you do if you're Terry Harper? She's just a spare part until Hearn decides to come back to South Yorkshire. And that's a real shame that her career derailed that she should have given Jonas the rematch when they asked for it. I think that would have elevated Terry Harper. I think, in fact, not even Terry Harper. I think everything the, the small ginger rat did ruined her reputation. And you know, he will come to regret that because now no one really cares about Terry Harper when they should have done. Um, uh, who else was on there? Hopi Price was on there. Uh, how do you describe Hopi Price? Hopi Price is all the skill in the world, looks good. Um, if you gave him devastating power, he'd be an all time great, but there is no power. And I don't know how Caldwell fixes that if he's still his trainer. I like Hopi Price, you can watch him, and when you're teaching kids in the gym, that's a good role model for them to follow. But I don't think at world level he'll do much damage. Uh, you could say the same about the kid young Boston, Janaid Boston I like him as well and he's stopping guys with flurries of punches but we need to see that that devastating KO but both these kids are talented I'm not going to tell you that they're rubbish, they're second rate I just think the lack of power starts to find you out at certain levels if you look at Lee Wood the fact that he can crack a bit has got him out of so much trouble because at that top level you need a point of difference what is your point of difference? Is it your engine? Is it your power? Is it your skills? Is it your defense? What is it? And with these guys, I'm not sure what their point of difference is at world level yet, but 
we can always find out. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to judge too much. I think they're probably the meaningful fights on the card. If I've missed anything, it's not an accident, by the way. I'm trying to think, yeah. How do we summarize that show? I think if you look at the coverage of that show, it's been interesting. They've wheeled out a lot of big guns. Billy Joe was out. Sonny Edwards was out. Um, Sam Jones. You know, All the right talking heads were out in the week. And I think that kind of helped draw the coverage at a point where they needed it. I don't think that was a sellout. I don't think it was anywhere near a sellout. Although the Warrington fans always make things sound like a big event. So credit to to Warrington for bringing those guys down from Leeds. I don't think the Nottingham presence was as great, but look, I'm not going to be mad because we're living in challenging times now. If people haven't got the two, 300 quid to make it a proper event, I understand. If you need to sit at home and watch it, fully understand Like in the current economic climate, you know, you've know, you got to cut your cloth accordingly. So 100% understood that. Now, what else has come out of kind of that matchroom world? Oh, so we've got two shows. We've got a Belfast show, which is Mick Conlon versus Jordan Gill. Jesus, I don't, I don't think Mick Conlon ever thought he'd have to fight Jordan Gill in his life. He, he must be kicking himself, going, "How bad must I be that I'm fighting Jordan Gill?" You know, and I think if anyone says Jordan Gill flattered, flattered to deceive for a decade, but probably a lovely kid. Not saying anything bad about him, but Mick Conlon was a guy who had the world at his feet. And suddenly he doesn't, no longer training with Adam Booth. Then again, who is? What's Adam Booth doing now? Has the hoax become the ghost? Don't know. So he's not training with Adam Booth. I think he's training with Pedro Diaz now, which will probably be in Miami. I think Pedro, Dr. Pedro Diaz is the guy that works with probably everyone that's using steroids, right? Like he's got, who's he got? Steffi Cohen. She was an ex-powerlifter, so you would suspect that she'd been on the gear I'm sure I've seen guys like Mike Rashid there who you'd suspect have been on the gear. I'm sure there are other people who have failed drugs tests that have been around Dr. Pedro Diaz. So draw your own conclusions, but that's the sort of caliber of person we've got in boxing. So he's going to fight Jordan Gill. Um, I think if you're Northern Irish, great. It's a homecoming for a lot of your guys, and I'm not knocking that. From the other side of the water... What does that do for Conlon? Why didn't he just fight Isaac Dogbo? Like, that would have been a better fight. It's a better sell. But, you know, that's me sharing my opinion. Uh, who else is on the Keevan Agyako will fight Troy Williamson. Um, God, they've been dragging this out for a long time. Decent fight for Keevan, actually. Let's see where he's at. And that would have been a good fight for Linus, actually. Linus versus Keevan. I'd quite like to see that. You know, like a more aggressive Linus against Keevan Agyako would be a good fight. Um... I can't even remember who else is on that card, to be honest with you. Uh, Crocker's on there, but I can't remember who Crocker's fighting, unfortunately. Sam Maxwell's on there against Sean McComb. God, if I've got that wrong, he's slapped me. So, so Belfast gets its own card. I think it's December 2nd. And they deserve it, man. They're, they're fervent fight fans. Um, you know, I talked to Al from the Ensfold podcast about Irish boxing a lot and how you need an Irish boxing scene. I think... Promoters should commit to doing one show in either the Republic, which I think is a bit harder logistically, or Northern Ireland, you know, to keep the sport alive there and give opportunities to those guys. Because boxing is so healthy across the whole island of Ireland that I'd quite like to see that. Um, also announced a Newcastle show. There's a next-gen show there, which is headed by Pat McCormack versus Peter Dolan, some American guy who's 16-0. We don't know him, so is it a big step up? Who knows? 
Um, like Pat McCormack, I think he's class. Um, move him through quickly. There's no point in him building. Just move him through quickly because if he's no good, we're going to find out quickly. If he's a real deal, we're going to find out quickly. Um, then you've got loads of those guys like Callum Reese, um, young Ben Reese. Ben Reese is quite talented, actually. Boxed at 81, I think, in the ABAs. Beat one of my kids, which hurt me. But super busy, intense uh, from a southpaw position, combination punches and amateur. I think he can do that now. Um, it's always like a baby George Crotty. I think <laughs> those in the amateur scene will know what I mean. But yeah, so Hearn, he says it's the best lineup in boxing for Q4. I'm not so sure about that. But it's the best for the British bunch. That's for damn sure. Because he's still got some key assets that he's hoodwinked us into believing are halfway decent. And, you know, we casually buy into that. So the last fight I saw was the, the Golden Boy card. So uh, Gilberto Ramirez against Joe Smith Jr. Now, big surprise that these guys came in at um, sort of the, the lighter end of cruiserweight. So 190 pounds or whatever it was. Because both are former light heavyweights. Now, I can't be sure whether this was just a, let's just get them out. And maybe they weren't in camp or in shape. And it was like, you know, why don't we just fight? I like this. Like, if they have no title ambitions, if you can find a catch weight like this and give an entertaining fight, why not? Sort of became more interested in Gilberto Ramirez when Umar Sadiq was out there. So I think, like, in Umar's early days in LA, he was training with Jonathan Chua, who I think works with Gilberto Ramirez. And uh, he spoke highly of his, his skills and his talent. Well, I think that was when he was at light heavy. But he lost to Bivol after that. So maybe that's the curse. And it seems after that, go up and wait. But why not? Like, if you, if you have no aspirations to fight for titles for now, why not have these competitive fights? So Badu Jack's not a big cruiserweight. I can see that fight making sense. There are loads of fights that make sense without necessarily needing to be for titles, but they'll do numbers because the fans connect. And I think that's where we're at right now, where the belts have been devalued so much that being a champion doesn't mean anything unless you beat the right person. That's why I don't understand this obsession with unification. Like, quite frankly, I wish Fury and Usyk would just scatter the belts and say, look, we're just going to fight to see who the man is in this division. Nothing else really matters. Being undisputed, it's devalued now because, like... How many people have been undisputed in the last six years? Is it Crawford? I'm not going to name them all, but Crawford, Taylor, Canelo, uh, Smaller Charlo, Inoue, Inoue again, probably, um, Usyk at Cruiser. We haven't had one at Light Heavy yet. Did we get undisputed at Middle? I don't think we did. Devin Haney. That's a lot of people to, to be undisputed in like a, less than a decade. That is a lot of people to be undisputed. Now look at people who weren't undisputed, like Mayweather, Pacquiao, Barrera, Morales. Um, let's think. Tyson was actually, but that's a long time ago. Klitschko, don't think he was unified. God, I hope he wasn't. That would be awkward if he was. Um... A lot of these greats that we talk about, Tony, um, Aguayo, all these guys going all the way back. I don't know if Sugar Ray was undisputed. A lot of these guys weren't undisputed, but they're some of the all-time greats. I don't think Roy Jones was undisputed. 
These are like all-time greats we're talking about. So we, we talk about it like it's a big deal. And let's give Eddie Hearn credit because it was Eddie Hearn that made these undisputed fights this big deal because he kept talking about Joshua being undisputed. And we suddenly thought that this meant something when it actually doesn't mean anything. So let's start talking honestly and saying we don't care about undisputed. What we care about simply is the best fight in the best fight in the best. That's boxing for us. You know? So if we've got to see Ramirez fight Joe Smith at 191 pounds, whatever. I'm okay with that. If we've got to see them fight Badu Jack and it's entertaining, I'm okay with that. Let's let's kind of bridge that gap between light heavy and cruiser because I'd rather see those guys fight at more comfortable weights and give us better performances. If I'm being honest, I just think that gap between no one seven five and two hundred is insane, and it's not it's not healthy to try and go from one to the other. As Tony Bell, you found out. One last thing I want to touch on is just people 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 said you know, I was trolling when when I said we needed MTK back in boxing because. Um, basically scattering MTK just brought more chaos but didn't actually change anything and if you notice what's happening in the game you're starting to see the, the bits come back together slowly but surely um, you see the names moving camps and situations and you're starting to see that kind of MTK reforming now I don't know if anyone's ever seen the TV series Shooter um, with I think it's Ryan Philippe in there and Omar Epps. It's worth it. It's on Netflix. Um, watch all three seasons. It's good. But there's an organization there called Atlas. And Atlas are basically, I'm not even going to say it in case they listen to the pod. But Atlas is Atlas, right? And they influence everything behind the scenes. They control a lot of things. And I get the feeling that boxing has that, where in every key entity, Matchroom, zone, BT, TNT, Queensbury, Boxer Sky, the entities are all there. And it's all coming together, but it's controlled by outsiders who are influencing the outcome of certain events. And we're starting to see it all come together because we, none, none of it ever went away. The same names, the same characters, the same people have always remained. We never got rid of them. And so what was the point in getting rid of MTK if everyone involved in MTK is still allowed to be involved in boxing? As if suddenly they're taking orders from somebody else or they've become autonomous. Do you know what I mean? So it's crazy. Um, but that's boxing for you, you know. When, when money needs to move, money needs to move. Last thing I wanted to touch on was I've seen a lot of people online passing judgment on uh, Dimitri Bivol. So just in summary, his wife's accused him of domestic abuse. Like I always say to people, have no opinion until you know the facts and the details. But the problem with boxing fans is they just always want to have an opinion and you know, they always want to be on the right side of the debate. Mate. Sometimes you've got to leave personal situations out of what we discuss because we don't understand the details. I don't for a fact and I'm okay with that. Um, I all I hope is it gets resolved definitively one way or the other, regardless. And, you know, everyone gets to move on with their lives and careers. What else has been happening in, in boxing that we need to be aware of? Um, Aziz Boatsi, two weeks ago. Not well promoted. Like, I think about this fight, and the story behind this fight is incredible. 
one guy watched the other one go to the Olympics and rise up and all the time he wanted some of that but was just never able to get over that line and Dan would admit that he would admit he wasn't the best amateur but my goodness has he made up for it as a pro and then you got the other guy in Josh who never thought he'd ever have to fight Dan yeah like back in those days it was like yeah what about Aziz it's like ah. you know I'm looking at world titles you know if Dan gets their cool but you know I'm looking at those guys and so they end up meeting and I think that's just a fascinating story yeah it's almost like the tortoise and the hare and none of this has been built up we haven't really delved into that story they haven't gone into the archives and said what about you guys they haven't done anything to make the public care about Dan and Josh and that hurts me because the public should care about Dan because Dan's the last of a dying breed. Dan is a guy who, who grafted his way to main event, main event status. Like Lee Wood. The, the same affection that goes out to Lee Wood should go to Dan. Because they've done it similarly. Like where they doubted, you know, has, Dan was like, has my moment gone? It's like, hell no. This is your time. And I haven't really spoken to Dan through this camp. And I'm hoping that's a good sign. I'm hoping that this means that we're going to get the best version of Dan because that's all I want to see is the best version of Dan because that best version of Dan is a problem to everybody. But I wish Sky and Boxer pulled their finger out. It all feels a bit like they've just got the work experience lot to do this. I'm like, but you're Sky Sports. You're telling me you've got no one in your department that can say, here's how we make people care. But Jesus Christ, you had the Premier League for like 30 years. You're telling me you have no idea what to do in these situations. You know, I don't care what anyone thinks. And I think Dan should have just gone to Hearn. Just go, go and match him. Um, jump in there with Spider. I mean, you'd be a far bigger star, man. I just think Boxer and Sky are dropping the ball on Dan. I think his, his is a compelling story. His is a never-say-die story. And I promise to God, if he wins... I want to see him on the Graham Norton show. I want to see Dan everywhere because that is a never say die story if ever there was one. And he, he deserves all the accolades that come. It annoys me because it means him and I get less time together. But if we're getting less time together because he's getting more famous and, you know, securing his future, it's worth it to me. 100%. And on that note, I am going to tap out because this might get too long. So as always, have a great week. Have a productive week. Don't let people get in your ear and tell you ain't good enough to do anything. Don't let, don't let any negativity get to you. Like I say to people, give zero oxygen to negativity and see how much better your life will be by the end of this week. Take care.